I think wonder at the natural world is really important. I think a lot of times when we're in policy discussions, people get into these debates about what the science says or what the science doesn't say. But I, I don't think people will ever really care enough to protect the natural world, regardless of, of how urgent the science is. I mean, we can see that the science on climate change is incredibly dire, but it's not forcing people to act. I think a lot of these, like the motivation to protect things or to act on any political issue, a lot of times does come from emotion. And I don't think we should be afraid of that. We're in a huge universe that's so vast, like our minds can barely comprehend it. And we're the only planet we know about where there's really any life at all, not to mention uh, the kinds of amazing life we have in the Amazon and the poles and all these different environments. We have so much diversity and so much um, amazing um, examples of evolution that have produced these animals with these crazy characteristics. Um, and I think inspiring people to, to think about those things and appreciate them, not for what they can do for them economically, but just for the fact that we live on a planet with so much life. I think that's really important um, because, again, I do think that you know, without that emotion, without that inner kind of feeling like, hey, this world is amazing, um, I, I don't see us making you know, progress in the long term. Welcome back to another episode of the Protect the World podcast. Every month, I connect with a different not-for-profit organization that's making the world a better place. My goal is to learn about the issues they're tackling, interview the founder or director, and then share their stories with you. But I don't just want to share their stories. I want to contribute to their work as well. If you'd like to help me, you can sign up to the Patreon via the link in the show notes. The voice you heard at the beginning of this podcast belongs to Claire Christian, Executive Director of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, or ASOC. ASOC is a not-for-profit organization that has been advocating for the protection of the Antarctic continent and its surrounding ocean for more than four decades. They're the only environmental NGO permitted to observe meetings of the Antarctic Treaty, where decisions about the future of Antarctica are made. And they work on behalf of the Antarctic conservation community, striving to enact positive change from within. In this episode, Claire and I discuss the myriad threats facing Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, the strengths and weaknesses of current methods of Antarctic governance, as well as the incredible, underappreciated creatures that inhabit the ocean floor at the bottom of the world. Claire is highly knowledgeable in both science and ecology, as well as global politics and international affairs, and I thoroughly enjoyed picking her brains on both sides of the equation. So now I bring you Claire Christian, Executive Director of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. Claire Christian, a very warm welcome to the Protect the World podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, thank you for having me. I want to start by asking, who are you and how do you describe yourself? Uh, well, I am the executive director of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. And I guess I would describe myself as, and our organization as kind of a focal point for the environmental NGO community in terms of Antarctic uh, environmental protection and, and policy. We are the only organization that is officially allowed to attend meetings of the Antarctic Treaty System, and the countries that are part of that system are the ones that are making the decisions about Antarctica's environment and the kind of activities that you can do there. 
So uh, we see our organization as, you know, trying to make sure that the environmental community and, you know, society at large has a voice in those discussions so that it's not just um, a few people's opinions, but, you know, that these the decisions they make represent what's best for the rest of the planet. Brilliant. Um, I want to talk all about ASOC's work in Antarctica, the treaty, uh, the history of the region, the threats and, and your ongoing campaigns. But before we get into any of that, I'd like to ask you to take us there, situate us in Antarctica. Not many people can say that they've been there. So what's it actually like to stand at the bottom of the world to experience one of the harshest environments on the planet? How does it feel to sail on the Southern Ocean, to walk on Antarctica? I want to live vicariously. What, what is that experience like? Uh, well, typically when you go to Antarctica, most, most of us who go, uh, go as tourists. I've, I've mostly been on tourist vessels. I've never been on an official research vessel. And you start out by leaving from South America, from Patagonia, and crossing the Drake Passage, which is one of the roughest uh, seas in the world. And sometimes you'll have what's called Drake Lake, so it's totally fine. Sometimes you won't. Uh, my first trip to Antarctica, it was so rough that I was pretty much lying down the whole, not the whole time, but for, for good chunks of it, and uh, did not feel very uh, up to doing much else. I felt a little sick, even with seasickness medication. But once you get past that, um, it's, it's just very cold. There's, you know, ice around you. It's a very different kind of environment, although I will say when I've been has been actually the Antarctic summer, so it's around... The outside temperature is around 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero Celsius. So it's not, you know, it's not, um, I guess, the kind of cold that you might uh, think of Antarctica as. You know, you're not, you know, there's parts of the United States right now that are much colder than Antarctica is. Um, it's not dangerous cold. You don't have to take any crazy precautions to keep from getting frostbite. Um but it is very cold and it is very quiet. Um, you know, we don't have the sounds of modern life other than the ship that you're on. You know, it's, it's, um, there's no street lights. There's no, you know, there's the, most of the buildings are scientific research buildings. There's no tourist hotels or there's no Starbucks, anything like that. So it's a very different kind of environment. And the, at least the, the places uh, that I've been um, on the continent, you know, there's tons of wildlife and the wildlife is kind of different than the wildlife you might experience um, back in your home. Um, it's they're They're not really afraid of you. Um, of course, you know, we stay, you, you have to keep a, a distance anyway, but um, you know, you it's, it's a very unusual experience. I think for most of us to be, looking at a whole bunch of, of birds or seals and they're just kind of sitting there. They're, they're not moving. They're, they're just going about their business. They're maybe not even paying that much attention to you sometimes if you're assuming you're at a, an appropriate and respectful distance. Um, so it's a very different kind of place. And also people are constantly reminding you not to disturb the wildlife. So I think, I think in our modern life, um, mostly the concern is, um, you know, when you talk about wildlife, it's like, oh, this this deer is in my yard and I don't want it there, but there, um, you're the problem or not the problem, but you know, you're the one who has to monitor your own behavior. So I think that's a very different way of looking at the natural world for most folks, um, constantly being reminded, um, not to disturb the environment. Um, and that's not something that we get a lot back in our, uh, 
in the civilized, uh, settled world, for better or for worse. Uh, and actually, I think if we brought that environment, that Antarctic ethic back uh, with us, we might be a little bit better off. But it's just a very different place. Um, you're just not going to find any of the creature comforts that you have um, back home. Um, you know, you're constantly... Um, monitoring, like I said, monitoring your own behavior to make sure that you're, you're not upsetting the natural world. You're watching every step you take and, um, you're surrounded by ice and not very many people. And it's just a completely, Mm -hmm. completely different, different world. Sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I, the, the thing that stood out to me was you said it was quiet and I don't know why I wasn't expecting it to be quiet, but yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, really, really interesting. I think one of the, the consequences of trying to project a 3d globe onto a 2d map is that a lot of people probably don't quite grasp just how big Antarctica is. Um, I'm not sure if you can rattle any statistics off the top of your head, but could you give us an idea of the scale of this continent and the oceans surrounding it? Yes, I, I don't have an exact uh, kilometer squared number off the top of my head, but the Antarctic region is about 10% of the planet. And um, just to maybe uh, something that will give you kind of a, an idea is um, all the world's oceans meet there. Uh, you know, the Arctic, the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land and the Antarctic is land surrounded by ocean. So you've got the convergence of all the world's oceans um, in a giant, in the world's one of the world's most powerful currents, I think actually the world's most powerful current going around the Antarctic, uh, the Antarctic circumpolar current. And um, when you talk about 2D and 3D, um, that made me think of something called the Spillhouse Projection, which if you look it up uh, on the internet, which uh, any of your listeners can do, it um, it's, basically, it's, it's basically a different way of looking at the world and it flattens everything out and, and shows you, but, but it has Antarctica at the center. And um, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, the typical, like we have, we have the poles at the top and the bottom. Um, mm. And when you do that, you can really see uh, that the world's oceans are all connected and they connect at Antarctica. And there's this giant global uh, ocean circulation process that takes hundreds of years um, and is really Antarctica is really critical to that. Like there's a lot of cold, deep water that comes up uh, from the bottom and gets circulated to the rest of the world's oceans. It brings nutrients. Um, you know, it absor- it's, it's absorbed heat. It's absorbing heat uh, from the rest of the planet. Um, and you can really see how critical um, Antarctic ocean circulation is, is to the rest of the planet. So even though we're not thinking about it all the time, even though it's very far away and hard to get to, the weather uh, throughout the world is influenced by what happens in Antarctica. So, you know, as you can probably imagine, um, with all these interconnected water bodies, if something different is happening in one of them, eventually it might take a long time. It might take decades or or centuries even, but eventually that will change uh, what's happening at other steps along the way of this global ocean circulation. So really Antarctica is not something that people think about on a daily basis, but it's an integral part of the the planetary climate system uh, and ocean circulation system um, that really we all depend on uh, for healthy life on our our planet absolutely i um i know off the coast of peru here we get the humboldt current which comes up from cold waters in antarctica and that's the reason you actually get penguins off the coast of peru despite being so 
close to the equator here. Um, really, really fascinating, all of those, those connecting dynamics. Um, let's bring in a bit of an international affairs perspective now and talk about the Antarctic Treaty. Um, I'd heard of this treaty before, but it wasn't until I was preparing for this interview that I actually read it for the first time, and I honestly found it kind of moving. It's a pretty remarkable document, um, especially when you put it in the historical context, you know, height of the Cold War, I think it came into effect a year before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and yet you've got the US and the Soviets and a bunch of other nations collectively agreeing that Antarctica would be a place for all of humanity. So. For people who might not have heard of it, tell us what the Antarctic Treaty is all about. Well, um, it, you're right. It is a very visionary treaty that was signed at a really tense time um, in world affairs. And it's amazing that it it was signed, uh, given the other things that were going on. But what had happened was that uh, there was an international geophysical year and, you know, a lot of countries were seeing the value of research in Antarctica. There's certain kinds of climate and, and all kinds of research that you can only do down there in addition to researching all their unique wildlife. Um, and I think there was a sense that, you know, this, this continent very quickly could be overtaken by these conflicts we're having in the rest of the world, you know, the Cold War um, and things like that. And so there was a desire to prevent that. And um, before before the conflict started, um, make sure it was dialed down. And that's where the, the impetus for the Antarctic Treaty came, came from. And um, it really is a, an amazing um, treaty. Um, there's, you know, many countries, or not many countries, but several countries had claims to parts of Antarctica. And the treaty has a very clever, I think, solution for that. It says that, um, you know, it kind of freezes claims, so no one can make a new claim. Um, but it also says that signing it doesn't mean that you recognize anyone else's claim or, um, you know, have any real opinion on it. Um, so that's was positive because it allowed countries that maybe have overlapping or competing claims to be able to sign it without um, having to negotiate a solution um, to the the differences of opinion over which territory was whose. Um, so while there are countries that kind of you will hear them refer to, um, you know, Australian Antarctic Territory or something like that, um, they haven't had to formally decide those claims. This is particularly interesting because I honestly had no idea that Australia to this day still claims 42% of Antarctica as an external territory, similar to Christmas Island, for example. This claim, of course, goes back to the British colonial period, and currently there are only four nations, New Zealand, France, Norway, and the UK, who recognise Australia's claim to this gigantic chunk of Antarctica. Just to put it in perspective, the Australian Antarctic Territory would cover around 80% of mainland Australia. That's almost twice the size of India. Now, Australia is a signatory to the Antarctic Treaty as well, so I think we realise our claim is a little bit silly, especially given that the area typically only has a population of around 150 people. But we do run the postal service in the region, so if you want to send a letter to any of those people, you'll have to go through us. Okay, back to the podcast. So it gave everybody a convenient way of working together, 
but not having maybe to tackle some issues that, you know, territorial claims elsewhere in the world can, even even if they seem maybe minor to outsiders for the countries involved, they often can drag on for hundreds of years and <laughs> spark violence uh, sometimes. So um, the treaty gave everybody a way to work together peacefully um, and pursue that kind of scientific research that was going on there um, without conflict. And it also gave everybody a decision, everybody who signed the Antarctic Treaty, a decision-making forum so that they could collectively agree um, on future decisions. So that gave all these countries, you know, again, who have their claims um, an out because it's a consensus-based system. So it basically said going forward, no decision will be made unless all countries uh, are okay with it. So it really um, promoted a vision for for peaceful cooperation on the continent um, without, you know, requiring some of maybe the more difficult conversations. So I think uh, that's really the strength of the Antarctic Treaty, is that it it it, it gave people uh, a way to to move forward uh, with this important place um, and prioritize the things that were important which is, you know, science and, and peaceful, peaceful cooperation. And it demilitarized the continent also, which is really, especially during the Cold War, that was an important thing. So it, get, it leveled the playing field in a way that um, all the countries that were active in Antarctica at the time could agree to. Amazing. And tell me a bit about how things have evolved since then. What rights, restrictions and responsibilities does the international community have towards Antarctica and the Southern Ocean at this point in time? Well, the, the treaty system has evolved quite a lot. Um, so initially, um, there were some discussions in, you know, after the treaty was signed, um, picky, that picked up uh, speed in the 1970s about possible uh, minerals, so oil and gas and, and mining um, operations in the Antarctic. So there was a question about how might we do that if, if we go forward with it. And obviously, that was something that was of, of interest to all the countries that had signed the Antarctic Treaty. How could they regulate those activities, given what I said, that the treaty is supposed to, you know, kind of make everybody equal? Um, mm -hmm. So they started to develop something they called uh, CRAMRA, which was basically a convention on regulating mining and minerals activities in the Antarctic. And mm -hmm. that's uh, when the international environmental NGO community started to get wind of this. Um, at the time, the treaty uh, meetings that they had were relatively closed. There was very little transparency. They would issue kind of very brief uh, official reports that were the only public record of the meeting. Um, there wasn't much media coverage of these meetings. There were no, weren't a lot of observers there um, from outside the countries that were the treaty parties. What, what period was this happening? So the 1970s, um, and so when, when NGOs started to get an inkling of this, they said, wait a minute, so we've got this continent that's beautiful, uh, largely untouched. I mean, obviously there has been whaling and other forms of exploitation down there, but, you know, the vast majority of it does not have a human presence. Um, why are we talking about, um, you know, spoiling it the way that we've spoiled many other areas of our planet. Why can't we talk about, you know, protecting it? And um, so this kind of started was was the beginning of, of NGO activity um, in the Antarctic before it had not been, I don't think there were a whole lot of organizations, you know, paying attention to what was going on at those treaty meetings. Um, 
And that kind of started the the phase, I would say, of opening up the treaty system to outside um, influence. And also in the late 70s, early 80s, um, they also started to discuss a secondary treaty um, to add to the Antarctic Treaty System, uh, the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, because there was unregulated, the fishing that was going on in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica was unregulated. And uh, there had actually been some collapses in fish populations because of of unregulated uh, fishing, largely by the Soviet Union. Um, And so the some of the the other treaty parties said, hey, you know, we've got to get a handle on this. Um, You know, the Soviets were starting to fish for krill, which is uh, a small crustacean that's really important in the Antarctic ecosystem. And there was a concern that, hey, you know, if, if the pattern, if they keep doing this kind of fishing that they've been doing, that's, you know, not very, um, you know, they're not, they're not sticking to any kind of catch limit. We don't want the entire Antarctic ecosystem to collapse um, because it's without krill, you don't have penguins, you don't have whales, you don't have seals. Um, And most species in Antarctica either eat krill or eat something that eats krill. Uh, So it's a very interesting uh, kind of environment that way that there's one species that is so important to so many of of the other species in the ecosystem. Uh, So they started negotiating this treaty and obviously, um, you know, NGOs were interested in that uh, because that's very important. Fishing is one of the main commercial activities that actually takes place in Antarctica. Um, And so they started getting involved with these um, with these bodies, uh, not always in an official context. Uh, there was no observer status for NGOs yet, but um, they were able, you know, in, in countries where the governments meet with uh, civil society organizations, they would meet with them. Uh, sometimes there were governments that would bring a civil society representative onto their delegation so they could attend um, meetings that way. And... Um, Basically, NGOs just did whatever they could to bring public attention to this kind of very opaque process. And they, uh, you know, Greenpeace got involved. They started a campaign for something they called World Park Antarctica instead in saying instead of instead of talking about how we're going to mine Antarctica, why don't we talk about how we're going to protect Antarctica? And so this continued all throughout the 80s. Um, the the Antarctic Marine Living Resources Treaty or CAMELAR, uh, or CAMELAR Convention was signed and, and put into practice and actually was a pretty uh, progressive treaty for the time. It included um, a requirement to be precautionary in terms of setting catch limits and regulating fishing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure um, I wasn't uh, very old in the 1980s, but from what I understand um, historically, you know, at the time, at the time, um, fisheries management was was pretty was still pretty relatively recent in terms of like scientifically determining catch limits, things like that. It, it wasn't very many decades old. And uh, so for an international organization to get agreement that, you know, we're going to have an ecosystem based approach, it's written into the convention that, you know, you're supposed to protect the ecosystem when you're fishing. Um, You're not supposed to make any changes that can't be reversed in two or three decades. Um, And you also have to protect the health of of the, the species that you're fishing. That was pretty a pretty big deal for the time. I mean, it might sound kind of just logical today, but in the 80s, um, you know, talking about ecosystems wasn't uh, wasn't as common. Um, so there was this great success uh, with the, the convention. And, um, you know, we did, we, we were succeeding as NGOs in bringing attention um, to 
to this, uh, you know, um, mining convention possibility. And so around uh, the late 80s, uh, the, the countries had finished their negotiations on the mining convention um, and that all that was left was for all of them to sign. And so it did kind of seem a little bit dire. You know, the NGOs were still pushing for no mining at all, mining ban, um, you know, in a world park. And uh, countries were still saying that's not going to happen. That's not realistic. All we can do is regulate it. Um, we can't stop it. Uh, but then kind of after all these negotiations had gone on for all these years, Australia and, and France uh, said, you know what, we're not going to sign this. And that was kind of a huge uh, moment, I think, um, after, you know, you typically if you negotiate something for or talk about something for a decade, you know, you want a result. Um, and then um, after that, uh, other countries joined them. It, it became clear that this was not going to succeed. And within a very short period of time, within about two years, the countries had instead negotiated something called the Environment Protocol, which includes um, a ban on mining um, and includes in not, not a regulations for how to mine, um, but regulations for how to protect the environment. It includes provisions for how to create specially protected areas to protect important um, habitats and species. Uh, it includes a process for doing environmental impact assessments for activities that you're doing in Antarctica. It actually was really important um, in terms of getting scientific researchers to clean up their act because they were some of these bases were storing, um, you know, their used oil in poorly secured containers outside in one of the harshest climates on the planet. And um, they were having a new a measurable amount of pollution on the, the local environment. Um, so this was, a, you know, a hugely, hugely big turnaround, I think, for the treaty system. It, it went from thinking about how to exploit um, to focusing on how to protect. And um, that was a really big deal. And that was about the time that uh, NGOs were uh, sort of more, are, are, uh, participation was formalized. We were allowed to attend Antarctic Treaty meetings as an official observer. Um, and, you know, we, we were allowed um, in the late, I forget exactly when it was, but late 80s um, to attend um, meetings on the on the Camelar Convention as well. And, um, you know, from from that point, I think I think um, my my reading of the situation is that that point really was you know, Camelar was starting to become a more formal organization. It had been around for a while. So around the 90s, it, the the ethos towards Antarctica had kind of shifted. You know, many of the countries involved were really focused on environmental protection in a way that they maybe had not been. And that, I think that kind of mirrored um, de developments in the rest of society as well. You know, there was during the discussions about um, the mining convention, we had the Exxon Valdez spill in, in Alaska and folks were looking and saying, or Exxon Valdez, excuse me. And folks were looking at that and saying, you know, if that happened in Antarctica, what would we do? You know, it's, it's yeah. even more remote than Alaska. Um, that could be a huge disaster. And so there really was a shift in the consciousness, I think of the Antarctic treaty system. And I think in, interestingly enough, you know, 
I think countries began to see it as in their national interest to be an Antarctic protector. It wasn't just like we have to do this because it's the right thing. It was this point of national pride. I mean, today, when countries talk about the environment protocol, they talk about it as a big achievement, you know. And I think, um, you know, that's not always the case. Countries often don't want to give up access to any kind of potential economic opportunity. But most of the countries in the system see this as, you know, I think a point of pride that we did this on behalf of the planet, you know, in a kind of unselfish way. Um, So uh, I think, you know, I think the system has really changed a lot over the years and it's it's still undergoing change now. Um, you have countries that have joined uh, since since all of these developments took place uh, that are com- becoming more vocal, like China is becoming more of an Antarctic power. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the system continues to evolve. Uh, there continue to be different challenges. Um, you know, climate change is obviously a much bigger topic than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um there's different pressures on the Antarctic environment. You know, when the when the mining ban and the environment protocol um, that that mining ban is part of were signed, uh, there wasn't much of a tourist industry. And now, you know, we have over 100,000 tourists visiting Antarctica each year. We have more scientific stations. Um, so we're entering kind of a new era. So if, if, if you kind of think about the mining ban and the institution of, um, you know, a, a fisheries or a regime that can monitor or regulate fisheries in the Antarctic is kind of one turning point in the late, in the eighties and nineties, you know, I think we're at another turning point now. Um, mm. You know, how are we going to respond to climate change? How are we going to respond to increasing fishing and, and tourism and increasing human activity? And um, are we going to be able to continue to implement those, those values uh, that we've had before? That's fascinating. I'd, I'd never heard that full, full history before. And I'm honestly a little surprised that my country led a ban against mining anywhere, but <laughs> that's good to hear. Um, I want to talk about those those threats and that kind of thing uh, in a little while, but the reason we're having this conversation is that you're the executive director of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. Tell me, you've talked a bit about it already, but how do they fit into this whole picture and how would you describe your mission as an organization? Well, as, as I mentioned, you know, the, the Antarctic Treaty System, initially these meetings were really opaque. Um, they're closed door. They produce a report, um, and the report is the only official record. Um, anything that's not in the report essentially doesn't ever really get discussed outside of the meeting. And um, so I think the first thing that we as an NGO community did was, was bring some transparency and public attention um, to this. And... Now that we've gotten some of these important um, important agreements in place, um, like the environment protocol and, and all these things, um, our role is less about necessarily telling people, hey, this exists, and more about getting countries to live up to the promises they made. Um, so they've signed these documents that have these incredibly important principles, like I said before, forward-looking for the time. Uh, but they did have to be actually implemented. It's, it's one thing to sign a document saying you're going to implement an ecosystem approach to fishing. It's another thing to actually get all the data you need and then agree by consensus to um, you know, put that data into regulations that everybody's going to follow. And then it's another thing entirely to make sure that the people on the fishing vessels are actually following those rules once you've made them. Um, 
So that's where our role is today, um, is making sure these things get implemented and also pushing um, new um, ways of implementing them. Um, for example, you know, like I said, climate change. Um, there is actually some, some reference to environmental change uh, in the Camelar Convention where they say, you know, you can close areas for the, the purpose of scientific study or responding to environmental changes, um, air, close areas to fishing, that is. Um, but at the time that that was signed in the 1980s, people weren't really talking about climate change or global warming um, to the extent that they are today. Um, so part of our role is to point out, you know, where are some areas that we can use the tools available to us, like such as closing areas or creating protected areas or, um, you know, regulating fishing to respond to climate change, um, things like that. Or how can we um, use these tools to respond to these um, the upward uh, increase in tourism and the amount of fishing um, to make sure that the environment is fully protected? So we're, you know, we are, we're about holding folks to their promises, but we're also about pushing the envelope, I would say, um, in terms of, of taking um, policies that we think will be effective or that, that are recently becoming, you know, there's evidence that they're effective, such as marine protected areas, and, you know, telling the treaty system, you know, hey, and the, the countries that are involved, hey, you need to do this. This is what, um, this is this is the best way to live up to your commitments, you know, based on the, the new knowledge we have, because we don't want the system to be static. I, I think sometimes um, folks get this idea that that they signed these treaties and now Antarctica is protected. Um, but it's it's a dynamic space. What people are doing there is changing and the environment is changing uh, very in some cases very rapidly. So. Uh, we can't just sit back and say, well, we did every, you know, we did a great job and now uh, there's nothing else we can do. Um, there's plenty that, that the countries that govern Antarctica can do to increase uh, the resilience of the ecosystem in the face of climate change, even if, you know, obviously they can't stop climate change in Antarctica. Um, they can't build a wall around it or anything. Um, but there's plenty that they can do to make sure that, that they're doing all that they can um, to give give the species and, and habitats in Antarctica a, a fighting chance, despite all the incredible um, and amazing—not amazing, but incredible—and uh, changes that are going on right now. So, I think that's that's our role is is to make sure that that countries are are doing that um, because I think we all know that when you don't have um, sometimes when you don't have an outside voice or public attention uh, on something, it's very easy for, for countries to say, okay, we're going to focus on these other important things. And there's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, but Antarctica is still important. And, and I think we also still believe that, you know, when you look at uh, the, the challenges the planet is facing, uh, the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, we need international cooperation to, to tackle all of these things. And Antarctica has typically been a place where countries have been able to put aside maybe their individual national interests in the greater interests of, of the planet. And we really need to see that kind of leadership. And we think, you know, it needs to, maybe it can start in Antarctica and then ripple out to, towards other places because uh, we really need more of that. We need less um, what's in it for me and more, okay, this is important. I need to do this for everyone's benefit. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, let's dive into some of those individual key threats and also the work that your organization is doing to, to address those. 
Um, so let's start with fishing. What are the, the challenges associated with fishing in the Southern Ocean and what is ASOC advocating for? Uh, so I think the first challenge is it's far away. Um, and in the past, that distance meant that there was more illegal fishing uh, for toothfish, or which is often commonly known as Chilean sea bass. And uh, CAMELAR, the, the governing body that, that regulates that, uh, eventually responded pretty well um, to that, to a, like a massive in, uptick in illegal fishing in the Southern Ocean in the late 90s and early 2000s. They put in place a catch documentation scheme. They put observers on toothfish vessels. Um, so now there's a lot more transparency in the fishery. Um, the number of illegal vessels going down there has, has declined a lot. Um, there are still a few, but largely the catch is uh, well-regulated and monitored today. Um, and the industry has largely cooperated with that um, in a way that's that's very positive as well. Um, uh, however, now krill, fishing for Antarctic krill, um, is becoming more popular. And that is kind of a different case because with, mm. with the toothfish fishing, um, you had what we sometimes call rogue vessels or pirate vessels or, or rust buckets, because they're usually not in very good shape. <laughs> um, they could opportunistically go down to the Southern Ocean once they had heard about this fish that was catching all these, or it was, was getting all these high prices um, when, when sold. They could go down and uh, throw out some lines and catch it and bring it back and sell it. Um, krill is a little different. You can't just catch, you can't just bring krill on board and then continue on. Um, is that for human consumption? It, it is some for human consumption. Uh, some is uh, for um, like omega-3 uh, fish oil capsules. And then some oh. is also made into feed for aquaculture, for farmed fish. Um, so yeah, so you, but you have to process it right away. Um, it, it starts to break down and it, uh, when it breaks down, the, the flesh is contaminated with fluoride. So it's, uh, not something you can eat a whole lot of or that you want to eat a whole lot of um, because fluoride in too large of an amount is not good for humans um, or or uh, fish or any other animals. So um, so you need to have a specialized ship to catch krill so that you can process it um, on board. So we don't see a lot of you know vessels just uh, scooting down uh, to Antarctica and grabbing krill and leaving like you might have with toothfish back in the old days. Um, however, uh, because there hasn't been this history of, um, of illegal fishing, the krill, krill fishing interestingly, is, interestingly enough, does not have to abide by some of the same rules that the toothfish fishing and, uh, vessels have to. There isn't a catch documentation scheme that ensures chain of custody from, from ocean to, to port. Um, the requirements for observers are different. Um, on a toothfish vessel, you have to have at least one international observer. So, for example, if you uh, are an Australian vessel, you, you can have one Australian observer, but then you have to agree with another country, um, like, say, the United Kingdom, um, to put an observer on the vessel, which gives, like, a layer of uh, objectivity, um, or hopefully gives a layer of objectivity. Um so the, the observer requirements are different. Kind of the reporting, um, like reporting your location um, to the, the headquarters, um, which is done to make sure that the catch limits are observed and that kind of thing, um, and make sure that all the vessels out there are, are legal. That Those requirements are also different. 
And so as the krill fishery expands, which there's been more pressure to do, um, there's more pressure for food uh, feed for agriculture, uh, aquaculture, not agriculture. Uh, there's more um, pressure to, to make uh, nutritional supplements, uh, omega-3s. Um, and there is uh, Ukraine, for example, is interested in increasing um, you know, human consumption of krill directly uh, because it is uh, fairly nutritious um, in, in terms of you know, that's why they make omega-3 capsules from it. Um, so there's pressure to expand the fishery, um, but there is somewhat, uh, there are some issues. Um, for example, with krill fishing, uh, unlike for toothfish fishing, they, they, catch, they catch the krill, they process it, and then they might, um, another vessel might come in that's not a fishing vessel and take offload some of the catch and then take it to port. And that's a process called transshipment. And globally, that's been identified as, as an area uh, that can create loopholes and make it harder to have that chain of custody, um, harder to um, d- make sure that, that what, you're ca- what you say you're catching is what you're catching um, and things like that. So there, there has been a, a big gap in Camelar's ability to oversee the krill fishery because there isn't monitoring of, of transshipment. Um, and there are some other gaps, like I mentioned, different observer coverage, different reporting requirements, different port inspection requirements. So when a ship comes in with krill, like do the port officials have to inspect it and make sure everything's above board? Um, so I think that that's a kind of a different challenge um, because I think it's it's easy for countries to say we don't want illegal vessels going in or relatively easy and we're going to do these things to prevent illegal vessels from fishing. Um, it's a little bit more difficult for some of the countries uh, that are involved in the fishery to say we're going to do more inspections. We're going to you know have more uh, monitoring of transshipment. We're going to do this. Um, and everything in Camelar requires consensus, so one country can block it. Um, so if a country is not particularly feeling up to um, increasing their scrutiny of their own vessels, then they will block uh, new regulations. So that's really the challenge we're, we're having today is can, we, can the krill fishery, as it um, gets bigger, um, can we keep an eye on it? And I think for krill, most of it takes place in the Antarctic Peninsula. I don't want to neglect this, which is an area undergoing some of the most rapid warming on the planet. And it's also a wildlife hotspot. So um, there's also a huge need to make sure that that the catch limits uh, are appropriate and are not taking food away from wildlife. Um, so we've got a huge uh, a challenge um, because there's a huge demand, um, but not sufficient rules in place at the moment to make sure that the fishery is well regulated and is not having an environmental impact. Do you know scientifically how they go about um, determining catch limits for something like krill? Um, it's it is kind of difficult. Uh, krill are a very mobile species. Um, there's, you know, a lot of variation from year to year in how much krill are in a particular place. Um, there is a process, uh, ongoing right now to try to resolve some of these issues. Um, one of the things that you need to do is figure out how much wildlife eat. And that is an ongoing challenge because there's, there's a lot of change in wildlife populations. Some of it for the better, uh, whale populations after whaling, have um, started to rebound. It's like an amazing conservation success story. Um, humpback whales are almost at the level that we think that they were before whaling. Um, other whales are, are recovering as well. 
and um, those those species can eat a huge amount of krill. Um, and in fact, we're learning new things about them all the time. Um, and just in the past couple of years, um, there have been observations of these huge aggregations of, you know, 100 or more uh, fin whales feeding on krill at the same time. And um, so trying to get a handle on those requirements is really important um, because it's not just, you know, we're not, you know, even though we are talking about um when we talk about krill vessels, we're talking about vessels that can fish a huge amount. There are so many whales now that they can, whales can compete with these vessels in terms of how much krill that they can consume. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the, the vessels go to the same place that whales and penguins and seals and other animals go. They go where the most krill is. Um, but the problem is once the krill are gone from a localized area, um, the ships can move on and find another aggregation uh, penguins, you know, that are feeding their chicks, uh, cannot, they cannot travel hundreds of miles to find more krill. Their chicks will just starve for just as one example. Um, so trying to figure out, um, wildlife needs and how much krill are typically in a smaller local area in any given year is really how you need to go about it. So you have to, to kind of get two numbers. You need to figure out, what, how many krill there are. Um, you need to figure out trends in the krill population because krill are very sensitive to climate and there's some thought that they might be moving south as the northern areas of the Antarctic Peninsula get warmer. Um, and then you also need to figure out how many wildlife uh, species are in the area and what their krill needs are. And um, that's a very dynamic uh, ecosystem. Um, and so one of the solutions that uh, our organization, ASOC, is advocating is that you need to create marine protected areas where there's no fishing in some of these areas as an insurance policy because it's, it could be very difficult um, to get the exact right numbers for every area. So That was going to be my next question. So tell me a little bit about marine protected areas. What are they and, and why are they important in the Southern Ocean and what ones have we got established already and are there others in the works? What's the, the current state? So marine protected areas are basically the same as a national park would be on land, um, but for the ocean. And in the last couple of decades, they've really gained a lot of momentum as a conservation tool. Um, I think because people realized uh, how difficult it can be to manage a lot of different activities in an area of the ocean or on land. Um, and also there's just been a lot of compelling scientific evidence that if you really want to protect uh, biodiversity, if you really want species to be able to thrive, um, you need to have large uh, areas in the ocean or on land where there's just very limited or no human activity. Um, unfortunately, even with the advent of more scientific fisheries management and things like that, you know, the evidence shows that that those, um, those rules aren't as effective as just eliminating fishing almost entirely from an area. And you know, we are in an age of a biodiversity crisis. Uh, I know there's a lot of concern about what's going on in the ocean. And the science is telling us that the best thing we can do to increase the resilience of ocean ecosystems and species is to set aside about 30% or more of the ocean in mostly no-take areas. And so that is something that, um, you know, is, is good for 
the whole planet, um, not just Antarctica, but all over the world. And more and more countries have have realized this and have signed up to something called the 30 by 30 um, or that we call the 30 by 30 goal, which is 30 percent of the land and ocean protected by 2030. Um, but Kemalar, interestingly enough, uh, had already signed on to create uh, a system of marine protected areas before 30 by 30 kind of gained momentum in the past, I would say, like five to seven years. Um but now it's it's becoming even more urgent because more and more countries are saying like we think this is this is the best way forward. Um, at the Convention on Biological Diversity uh, meeting in at the end of 2022, the countries agreed to the Global Biodiversity Framework, uh, which largely is about that 30 by 30 goal. Um, and so I think it's, they're really important in Antarctica, um, especially not only because Camel are committed to doing it. Um, but because we are experiencing such rapid climate change at a time of increasing human pressure and the, the marine protected areas accomplish a number of, of goals along that line. Um, one they they will create areas like, like I said, in the Antarctic peninsula where it's a very dynamic system, it's difficult to get it exactly right. They kind of create an insurance policy. Um, you know, fisheries management is great uh, when it works. Um, but, but if you get it wrong in, in that region, you could really create a, a catastrophe. Um, so there's, there's definitely a need for that. Um, but there's also some very, some other reasons to create marine protected areas. Um, for example, we have uh, a marine protected area in the Ross Sea that has already been established by Camelar. And the Ross Sea is uh, one of the, the least disturbed ecosystems left on our planet. And so there's um, a compelling reason, I think, to keep it that way. We have very few ocean ecosystems that are healthy um, and in somewhat close to their sort of natural state. And being able to study those is a really phenomenal opportunity for scientists to understand how, um, how ecosystems work, how, um, how we can maybe keep them healthy in the future. And um, I think it's also just about uh, recognizing that we, in the rest of the planet, we have seriously screwed up. You know, we have mm. degraded our ocean environments significantly. We have put all these pressures on them. And with the Antarctic, we have a chance to learn from those mistakes and uh, protect ecosystems that we honestly don't even know that much about in some cases. Mm. Uh, for example, in the Weddell Sea, there's, there's another MPA that's been proposed there. Um, after the MPA was proposed, um, German scientists were doing some routine seafloor surveys, and they stumbled across, they weren't even looking for them, they stumbled across the largest fish nesting site on the planet. So fish, sometimes fish create nests for their eggs. It's not common, but it happens. Um, and they found what is the largest one that we know of. There could be more since there's, since in some cases we, there are many huge gaps in our knowledge of the ocean. Um, inside the boundaries of the proposed MPA, you know, millions of fish nests. And um so it's these kinds of things that, you know, it, these things are more valuable than, you know, a few million dollars worth of fish. And so I think we have a real opportunity with marine protected areas in the Southern Ocean to not only um, make sure that some of the sensitive areas are not um, disturbed, um, 
as as fishing increases, as fishing pressure increases, but also a chance just to set aside um, some really unique uh, ecosystems that you can't find anywhere else on the planet and make sure that they are protected uh, for the long term. Amazing. That I, I can't imagine what it would be like as a scientist to, to come across a discovery like that, you know, casual survey. I know the, the latest planet Earth had a similar thing with uh, pearl octopuses. They found this massive breeding site of 20,000, 50,000 octopuses on the ocean floor. You know, it was really incredible. And um, I think mm. it just goes to show how... Um, how little we know about the ocean. I mean, this is an area that, you know, has a lot of scientific research going on. Um, that, like I said, there was a whole proposal for a marine protected area that's based on all these layers of data, but yet, you know, we didn't know about this. Um, and we, we have this amazing opportunity to protect it now that we know, we know about it um, before we damage it. Unlike so many other things in the ocean that we've damaged without even realizing it. Um, so it's a great chance for humanity, I think, to come together and say, look, we've learned the error of our ways and we want to keep this planet healthy and thriving for future generations. So definitely talk to me a little bit about uh, tourism. Now, I was pretty shocked to learn that the number of tourists has gone from 36,000 to over 100,000 in like eight years. Um, obviously, that kind of growth is going to become unsustainable at some point. Maybe it already is. I'm not sure. Um, tell me, what are the problems with tourism in Antarctica and what does sustainable tourism look like? Okay. So basically what happened was there was this other process going on at something called the International Maritime Organization to develop a polar code for ships that operate in the Arctic and Antarctic. And when the polar code was, um, you know, when the first kind of round of it, they're still adding to it, was completed, a lot of ships, a lot of companies that do uh, polar tourism, um, you know, now that they had some certainty about what the international regulations would be, they built a bunch of ships. And that's why there's been this increase to over 100,000, because those ships were built and now they're coming online and they're being used uh, for polar tourism. Um, and... So we're seeing um, we're seeing these numbers that we've never seen before. Um, prior uh, to the pandemic, you know, tourism had never exceeded a thousand, hundred thousand, and now that the pandemic is largely over and normal operations have resumed, we're seeing um, these much larger numbers. Um, and you might think, I think, I think a lot of times when I say a hundred thousand tourists, you know, people in the Antarctic world think that's a big number, but other people mm -hmm. might think, well, Antarctica, you just said Antarctica is this huge place and it's largely uh, undisturbed. So what's the big deal about 100,000 people? Well, the big deal is that most of those tourists go to a very small uh, number of sites in a small area. So only about 2% of the continent is ice-free and you generally need an ice-free site if you're going to, to land. Um, and so a lot of human activity is concentrated uh, in those ice-free areas, whether it's scientific uh, research stations or tourism. So you've got um, a relatively small area that's being visited um, by a fairly, a relatively, a comparatively large number of people. Um, and there is, um, you know, the Antarctic environment is very fragile. The species that live there are very tough. They can survive the harshest conditions on Earth, but they are very vulnerable to disturbance. Um, you know, a footprint on, on Antarctic soil can last for decades. Um, so you've got, um, 
you've got this combination of these, these species that are adapted to conditions that we could never survive without extremely specialized equipment, but they're also very sensitive to small environmental changes, um, whether that's disturbance from humans or climate uh, changes, which are obviously occurring uh, at some of the rapid, uh, the fastest rates in the world in the Antarctic Peninsula. And then I think the, the additional problem um, in terms of tourism is that um, there aren't a lot of international regulations concerning tourism. There's, um, you know, there's no kind of comprehensive um, system for uh, the peninsula that says these areas are off limits and these areas aren't. There are some small um, Antarctic specially protected areas that, that are off limits, but a lot of uh, most of the, the region is, is not um, protected under those areas. So um, it's largely, the industry is largely self-regulated um, by something called the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators. And they, they have, um, you know, most of the most of the tourism takes place um, that takes place is from IOTO members, and it is they do have a lot of uh, guidance for their members on how to operate safely, um, how to respect wildlife, how to protect the environment. They have all these things, but ultimately they are a voluntary organization. Um, the The treaty system itself does not have a lot of hard and fast rules for how uh, tourism should be conducted. Um, which is, is a risk for the long term because if new companies want to operate there and they get a license from their government to operate there, they can do that. They don't have to join IATO. They don't have to follow the rules that IATO members follow. Um, they only have to make sure that their country is satisfied with them. And that can kind of lead to... Um, even now that kind of leads to differences in how tourism is managed um, because it is managed on a national basis. So somebody might say, hey, I want to do this crazy adventure thing in Antarctica. I want to climb six mountains in two weeks or something like that. And you might go to one country for a permit and they might say no. And another country might say yes. Um, so there's there's some, you know, there's a lack of consistency sometimes um, in terms of how um, tourism is permitted to operate there. Um, and I think for the long term, there needs to be, you know, an official governing regime. There needs to be a vision. It doesn't, you know, you shouldn't really have, if you're trying to protect a fragile environment, you don't want people saying, okay, well, we're going to start landing here. Cause we like, we like going to this spot. Um, you want there to be a kind of planning process saying, okay, here's, here's the region that tourists are landing in. What are the important um, ecological features of this region? Um, let's protect these or, um, you know, this colony, this, this penguin colony is, is really uh, fragile. So we're going to ban tourism here. You, and, and in many cases, there is um, scientific information for that um, that can tell you, okay, um, you know, we have this kind of habitat here and that's really uh, unique um, and we need to protect it. So there, but there isn't, there's the information is there, but the governance system has not made it into a set, set of rules that everybody's agreed to, uh, to make sure that everybody's uh, following the same um, regulations. So that's really the challenge that we have going forward is how can we make sure that uh, if the industry grows, that it's, it's growing 
and operating according to um, principles that are going to protect the environment. And these things are all pretty standard in in other areas of the world, right? Like there are national parks uh, all over the place where, you know, they might have a number of visitors, a maximum number of visitors a day. Um, yeah. Or they might have some areas where of a national park uh, where you're not allowed to go. Um, and that, so all that's pretty standard. These things are not like new concepts, but what is difficult is getting um, almost 30 countries to unanimously agree to implement them domestically. Um, which is what you would have to do. So the treaty system would agree, or that the, the countries that attend the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting would agree. They would say like, okay, um, you know, for example, the tourist season is this date to the state every year, and no tourists are allowed to go before or after that. Just as one example, because that's, that's something that's pretty common. Um, then once they agree that, they'd have to go back and put it into domestic law. So that's 30, you know, almost 30 different uh, legal or domestic uh, legal implementation processes. So that's, that is a lot of work. And um, so I think there's a lot of interest in the treaty system. Many countries have said, hey, we recognize that tourism is growing and that we need to, to have a comprehensive approach to it. Um, but the, the question is, um, you know, how do we do that? How do we get... Uh, all these different countries with all these different legal systems and all these different ways of doing things to um, agree on what they what they're going to do. Um, so that's really the challenge. Um, you know, it's it's about getting Antarctic tourism into the 21st century and and up to speed with maybe international best practice in terms of tourism and insensitive ecological areas. Um, you know, I think we're fortunate in that there is a lot of goodwill uh, from the industry. Like they, you know, the kind of tourism that takes place in Antarctica is very much focused on, you know, natural beauty, uh, wilderness values, uh, wildlife. And so that's great. Um, now is the time to seize on that um, and make sure that, that we can maintain that type of tourism, that we don't get into the kind of, you know, uh, hotels and things like that <laughs> that you might see at other tourist sites. Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of at a, a, an interesting point here. Tourism is increasing. The pressure on the environment is increasing. Um, climate change impacts on the continent are increasing and we really need the governance system to step up and take action. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. And I hope that, um, I hope that we can get to an international agreement in regards to tourism soon. That sounds, sounds like it's much needed. Um, all right, let's talk about the big one, climate change. 2023 was a, a record-breaking year for Antarctica and, and not in a good way. Um, could you walk me through the impacts of climate change that we're seeing in Antarctica and the Southern Ocean? Yeah, so it's really wide-ranging. I mean, I think the thing you see about see in the news most often is about glaciers and ice. Um we're also seeing things like uh, penguin colonies uh, shrinking in size. Um, so some penguins are, are more sensitive to this than others. For example, chinstrap and adelie penguins um, like the cold more than gentoo penguins do. So gentoos in some areas are increasing while chinstrap and adelie penguins um, are decreasing. And this is mostly in the Antarctic Peninsula, by the way, um, because that's the, the area that's warming the fastest. Um, <clears throat> You're also um, seeing increasing acidification um, in the Southern Ocean. 
um, which is a big deal because many species at the lower end of the food chain uh, use a mineral called calcium carbonate that's present in, in seawater to form their shells. And when more carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, more that, that dissolves into the ocean. Um, and more carbon dioxide in the ocean means that there's less calcium carbonate and more carbonic acid. And so when there's less uh, car calcium carbonate available, some of these species can't form shells or they form very weak shells that are prone to damage. And we're already seeing some species uh, like that because the, the Southern Ocean is already relatively low um, in, in some of this, um, in, in, in this mineral. Um, so we're seeing Im impacts of ocean acidification. Um, we're seeing warmer temperatures in, in, um, the ocean. Um, we're seeing less sea ice. Uh, we are seeing thinning of glaciers. Um, there's a huge, uh, range of things that can happen. Um, we're seeing more, uh, more rain, um, for example, a mm -hmm. colleague of mine was down um, in Antarctica around this time uh, last year, and he saw rain, um, which is very unusual. And rain is pretty bad uh, for penguins mm -hmm. um, because the chicks don't have waterproof feathers yet. They have down. And when the down gets wet and it's close to freezing outside, they, they might not make it. Um, mm -hmm. So you're seeing changes in local Antarctic weather, and then um, other countries around the world are already being affected by that Antarctic weather, um, uh, those Antarctic weather changes as well. Um, and we're also possibly seeing some some changes in ocean circulation due to um, you know warming of the ocean around the continent. Um, so the it's it goes from global. I mean, it goes from local to global, um, and a lot of the, the things that we're seeing, we don't, or a lot of things we don't even, you know, really know um, what's going to happen. Um, we know that a lot of Antarctic species, as I mentioned earlier, are very sensitive uh, to temperature changes. Um, so those temperature changes are occurring and um, it may take a while before we're able to see uh, how exactly that's going to affect them. Um, we, there is a prediction that krill are going to move south um, and so if krill move, that will change uh, the ecosystems that they've moved from, obviously, because so many species depend on krill. Um, but really, it's a tremendous upheaval. I mean, it, it does go beyond um, sea level rise, which is extremely important. Uh, Antarctica has, you know, over, well over 100 feet of uh, sea level rise in it. So if the whole continent melted, um, there would be a lot less land. Fortunately, even, even at our rapid pace of climate change, that's going to take a long time, but um, even a few inches of sea level rise in low-lying areas can cause uh, damaging flooding. Um, so yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing a, a myriad of changes um, that are happening um, at every level of the ecosystem. The, the biodiversity dynamics are really interesting. I, I live um, in Peru, sort of at the, the base of the Andes, where the Amazon meets the Andes, and we see really similar dynamics with warming temperatures. You get um, particularly insects moving up the, the gradient um, to higher altitudes to get to cooler areas and then other animals moving with them. And it's, it's interesting that you're seeing a similar sort of process playing out in the, the oceans down in Antarctica. Yeah, definitely. And, 
And a lot of the, I think the changes are going to be hard to predict uh, because mm-hmm. even though there there is a lot of scientific research going on in Antarctica, a lot of amazing scientific research, there's also a lot of um, things that we don't know yet. And we don't know some species will be able to adapt and some won't and how that will affect the broader ecosystem. I think um, we maybe don't understand very well right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in how you compare the scale of the different challenges facing Antarctica and the Southern Ocean. Very roughly, what percentage of ASOC's time and resources are dedicated to your various projects and campaigns? Where are you, where are you focusing the majority of your attention? Um, right now, we have a huge focus on marine protected areas um, because uh, Camelar did agree to create a system of marine protected areas back in 2009. And so we've been working uh, since then to get them to implement that. And so far, we I think I mentioned the Ross Sea, but I also wanted to mention um, in 2009, actually, another MPA was created, uh, the South Orkney Islands MPA. Um, so we only have two, which doesn't quite make a system. Um, and it's also nowhere near 30% of the Southern Ocean, which is uh, the goal. Do you know what percentage you're at, roughly, of the Southern Ocean? I think we are at... I think around five. I would have to check that. I had a quick look and it seems that while 12% of the Southern Ocean falls into an MPA of some kind, less than 5% is fully protected in what's known as no-take areas. I was actually quite surprised to learn that there's a lot of discrepancy in what can be classified as an MPA, leading to confusion regarding the 30 by 30 goal. Whatever way you look at it though, there's a lot of work to be done. According to the Marine Protection Atlas, a little over 8% of the world's oceans are currently protected to some degree, but less than 3% fall into a fully or highly protected area like the Ross Sea MPA, which is what marine experts say we should be focusing on. Okay, back to the podcast. Even though the the Ross Sea MPA is the world's uh, largest uh, MPA, and um, I think the largest high seas MPA, although there aren't a lot of high seas MPAs, so maybe that doesn't mean too much. Um, it's a very large MPA, but the Southern Ocean is also very large. Um, so we're we're quite uh, we're we're still working on uh, getting to that target level of thirty, and um, we so we are focusing on that a lot. And there's a lot of global momentum towards that, uh, as I mentioned. So that is a big focus, but we're also uh, hoping to increase our focus this year on tourism regulation as well, um, because that is a subject that is gaining uh, some political momentum, I think, within the system. Um, Last year, for the first time, um, a a very large uh, group of countries at the Antarctic Treaty meeting agreed uh, that they wanted to see a comprehensive management system for tourism, which may not sound uh, really earth shattering, uh, but it has been something that they haven't said before. Uh, So it does indicate that there's movement in their thinking about how they should be approaching the management of and regulation of tourism. So that's, that's a big deal. Um, We're also interested in, um, we're also spending uh, a good amount of time on the krill fishery um, and making sure that that, that is uh, well managed. And in fact, this year there's going to be um, a separate meeting um, to discuss uh, the krill fishery and a potential um, MPA in the Antarctic Peninsula region where the krill fishery takes place and how those two should um, 
be integrated or work together. Uh, and that's a really important opportunity uh, for these countries to think about how they want to manage human activities in the region and how they can um, effectively conserve um, the biodiversity that's there. So uh, these things are really important to get right. Um, and so we are, we are really focusing on that. But I think in, in terms of the bigger picture, um, something that we as a coalition are concerned about is just the general, just preserving the, the general values of the Antarctic Treaty System, which are conservation focused, uh, you know, science focused. Um, there has been a lot of trouble achieving consensus on various issues in it, both the Antarctic Treaty meeting and the Camelar meetings over the past few years. And um, that is kind of worrisome because there there is a need for these uh, bodies to take action to address the challenges that they're facing. And, um, you know, we don't want to spend another 10 years debating MPAs. I mean, the science is clear um, that they are effective and they're you know, the, the science uh, supporting the individual proposals that countries have made for MPAs in the Southern Ocean is solid um, and is, you know, international best practice. Um, so the time is now to take action. We, we don't want to wait till environmental damage has occurred. Um, and so I think that's something that we're also working on as well. Um, you know, there are more countries in the, the system now. And um, how can we get all these countries to be on the same page, recognizing that there's always going to be differences of opinion and how you how you approach environmental issues based on different national systems. Um, but there has been, you know, in the past, we've seen that these countries could come together and, you know, make decisions that were in for in the collective uh, benefit or for the collective benefit. And we really need them to do that right now, possibly more than ever um, when our mm. planet is in such a crisis. And so that is something we're thinking about as well. You know, how do we make sure that, um, you know, not just we don't want to get a bunch of good decisions and then you know, then that's it. Um, we need a system that is responsive. We need a system that is always, um, you know, looking at what needs to be done and doing it um, now and 30 years from now. Um, so how do we create a resilient Antarctic governance system that can respond to emerging environmental challenges, can respond to new information in a timely fashion? Interesting. It's interesting you mentioned consensus. That seems to be a common theme, not even just in environmental issues, but international affairs across the board. Do you think do you think consensus is the best way to achieve these kinds of um, this kind of progress? Or do you think we should be looking to more sort of democratic majority, even if it's a two-thirds majority or something like that, for getting these these systems through? It has advantages and disadvantages. So there are international bodies that, that don't require consensus. Um, and there are international bodies like the Antarctic Treaty System that do. Um, and both can be functional. Um, however, um, I do think I do think we are in the Antarctic Treaty System seeing um, a lot of the challenges of consensus right now. I mean, I think at its best, Consensus means that once you get a decision, you've got everyone behind it. Um, so it's very durable. You know, um, we've all agreed to this. Maybe it was really rough getting there, but we're now on the same page. And 
So we're all going to do this. Um, you know, the risk if you don't have consensus is, you know, you've got a couple of disgruntled folks who aren't really going to have bought into whatever decision you've made and are not going to implement it um, effectively. Um, so I think, unfortunately, now, though, we're seeing most of the, mostly downsides from consensus, which is that um, there's broad agreement uh, among many Antarctic Treaty parties and the countries that participate in this governance system about what needs to be done. Um, there's a lot of scientific evidence backing up uh, what they would like to do. And then there's just a couple of holdouts holding other folks back. Um, and there isn't always a good faith um, effort to try to find uh, a way forward. Um, mm. You know, consensus you know, in an ideal world, consensus isn't just used whenever you feel like it. Consensus is something, um, you know, you should always be acting in good faith. It's like, yes, I oppose this, but, um, you know, here's what we could do to, to move forward instead. And unfortunately, I think these days, um, a lot of things are just being blocked with without that side, um, without those side conversations, uh, genuinely looking for a way forward. Um, and that is a real problem. Uh, especially, like I said, we, we have a, a very rapidly changing ecosystem. We have increasing pressure on those ecosystems from human activities, and we don't need to, to sit around for the next 20 years debating what we need to do. We know what we need to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd like to shift focus to you as an individual now, Claire, if that's all right. Tell me, was Antarctica always an obsession for you, or did you fall in love somewhere along the way? Um, no, it was not. Um, I started working for ASOC when I was in grad school uh, for inter getting my master's in international affairs. And um, I was looking for a job and I just happened to find one here. Um, but I think uh, what has kept me, what drew me into the work and what has kept me working here um, and has gotten me to, from, you know, opening the mail to running the organization is the fact that we do have such an incredible opportunity in Antarctica. We do have um, this, uh, these, these visionary treaties that have uh, very strong environmental principles. I mean, I think it's really incredible, actually, that you have, um, you know, before people were talking about 30 by 30, decades before people were talking about 30 by 30, you have in the environment protocol um, a system for designating uh, Antarctic specially protected areas that is extremely compatible with what the latest science says about why you should be like protecting areas on land, basically. Um, you know, and that was 1991. Um, and you also have, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, the Camelar Convention is basically telling you to protect the ecosystem back when a lot of people probably weren't even using the term ecosystem. Um, so you've got these incredible treaties that that are still fit for purpose um, at the current moment, even though they had no idea about the, the environmental challenges that we would be facing in the year 2024. Um, they have all the tools we need, and I think that's really incredible. Um, and I really do feel like there is a tremendous amount of goodwill towards Antarctica and wanting to protect Antarctica. And I think that's, that's something special that we need to preserve. Um, even in a difficult climate where you aren't reach, able to reach consensus on a lot of issues. I think it would be unacceptable at this moment in our history to give up and say, hey, you know, this is too difficult. These countries are never going to agree. Um, we'll just let it go. You know, Antarctica will probably be fine. 
Um, that to me is, is not a, you know, as a, as a citizen of this planet, um, who enjoys uh, breathing air and drinking water <laughs> and um, eating food, I feel like it's my responsibility to do whatever I can to leave this place better than I found it. And, um, you know, whether that's locally or globally. And I think if we can't get Antarctica right, we're, we are kind of in trouble as, as a society um, because it is, it is in some ways a lot easier um, yeah. than areas that are closer to home. Um, you know, for example, the, the fisheries that we have in Antarctica, these are generally not like feeding the masses. Um, so, you know, these are luxury things. Uh, and, um, you know, if we can't, if we can't get, um, the management of those kinds of fisheries, right. If we can't, uh, protect the environment that those fisheries operate in, how are we ever going to do it? Um, globally. And we really need to do that globally. Um, and so I think that's what keeps me going is just the sense that, you know, yes, in a lot of ways, we get a lot of bleak environmental news these days. But I, you know, we have seen in the Antarctic that people, people can make the right decision. Um, it might not be easy, it might take <laughs> years and years, um, but they can get there. And I think, um, I think that those of us who care about the environment have a responsibility to keep pushing our leaders um, to do the right thing, uh, to overcome their inertia. Um, because I just don't see how we're going to survive as a species if we don't at some point start, um, thinking long-term and thinking about the collective best interest. Absolutely. Yeah. Was there a, a particular moment that you knew that this was something you were going to dedicate yourself to? Was there a point working for ASOC that stood out to you or? I think it was kind of a gradual thing. I think it was, um, you know, my kind of dawning realization that um, of how important international cooperation is for, for a variety of issues, not just environmental issues. But, um, you know, I think it's easy when you're not part of that system. You know, you hear about the UN and it seems kind of slow and dysfunctional and not particularly... Um, you know, sometimes you'll see like this UN declaration and it'll be very kind of mild mannered and, uh, you as a, as an outside observer thinking that's crazy. Why can't they condemn this terrible thing in strong language? It's so obviously <laughs> bad. Um, but being part of that system and realizing how difficult it is to sometimes get people <laughs> to even make those very mild bland statements, um, or take a very mild approach. Um, but then also having the perspective from ASOC of, yes, we thought we had lost the battle for a mining ban. And then at the last second, we turned, it was turned around, you know, the situation turned around for a very positive thing, like realizing that we, that, that you, that, that, um, the hard work is worth it, I think, um, just made me want to stick with it because I do see that it is a, it is a big challenge. It is frustrating, um, you know, when you're an NGO, you, you know, we want, we want big things done and we want them done mm -hmm. fast. Um, and I think realizing that, that we have a role to play in, in making them happen, maybe not as fast as we'd like to happen them to happen, but making them happen, I think, um, made me feel like I was really, um, doing something useful and doing something that, um, maybe isn't always very glamorous, um, but I think has big payoff in the long term. Brilliant. 
Tell me, who were your key influences and role models when you were younger? Were there any important teachers that inspired you or a public figure that you looked up to? You know, um, maybe not growing growing up, I actually don't remember having a lot of um, specific people. Um, I mean, were you, were you interested in international affairs and science and wildlife as a, as a kid? Not really, honestly. Um, that was more of an, I was interested in science, but kind of in a, in a general way, you know, like I, I read a lot of books. Um, but in, in high school, I wasn't, um, you know, I was, I was interested in science, but maybe not like passionate about it. Um, in college by the, by the end of high school though, I was getting, I I was thinking about it more as something I wanted to do academically. So I did minor in biology as an undergraduate. Um, But I think um, I think the kind of people generally who inspire me, um, somebody uh, maybe who may not be familiar to you is uh, Shirley Chisholm. Uh, she was a black woman in the United States, is the first uh, black woman to run for president. Um, and I she describes herself as a practical idealist. And I, I like that approach. Um, you know, she was always someone who wanted to get things done. But she also, um, you know, wanted to have a vision. She didn't want to just accept the status quo and how things were. And I, I, I would like to be that kind of person, too. Um, you know, I, I definitely am kind of a, a details person. Like, how do we get this done? Um, but I also want to think big. And I think it's important for people to think big because I think it's, it's social progress from what I've seen doesn't happen without a lot, a lot of effort. And sometimes it'll be a lot of effort just to move the needle a little bit. But if you don't make, start moving the needle, uh, things never happen. Um, so I think the kind of people who inspire me are people like her who do things that are very um, challenging and difficult, like being a black woman to run for president in the 1970s in the United States of America. Um, but they, they, um, you know, want to do something important and that matters. And they're not, um, they're not afraid of, of bucking the status quo or going against what people tell them. Um, so that's what I try to do. I try to think about, you know, what is, what is the best thing that we can do? And even if people are resistant to it at first, um, you know, keep pushing. Um, you never know what amazing things you can accomplish, but if you give up right away, you'll never accomplish anything. So. That's a really, that's, Becoming a common theme on on this podcast is idealism and pragmatism, and quite often you get um, heads of NGOs talking about uh, the need for this idealistic vision, something to work towards, a goal to aspire towards, but then also being able to just take those pragmatic steps and work at it every single day. And yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough work. <laughs> um, What advice would you give to a young person who's interested in doing the kind of work that you do? Uh, Well, there are a lot of different paths. Um, You know, we have different kinds of people in our organization. There are people like me who um, maybe only stumbled upon this um, accidentally. There are folks who do have, you know, a very um, strong marine science background or policy background. Um, I think the key is just developing yourself as a well-rounded person, Um, you know, understanding uh, a lot of different aspects of looking at a lot of different ways of looking at the world, Um, 
you know, science is great, policy is great, but you you need to be able to to understand and be comfortable with discussing both. Um, I think um, developing good uh, writing skills is really important. Um, I think I think becoming um, uh, a creative but also analytical thinker is more important than anything. I mean, I think those. I think one. I, I went to um, a college called Pomona College, and um, I th- I felt like Pomona really prepared you to do a variety of different things. Um, so you know, being um, you know, I wasn't planning to do Antarctic environmental policy at the time, but the kind of skills that I learned um, in my courses at Pomona really prepared me well. So I would say it's less about doing anything specific and more about um, pursuing what interests you, finding out what interests you, um, figuring out what you're good at um, and and trying to go from there. Um, there's a ton of need for bright and um, energetic people in the environmental movement. Um, and so I think just developing yourself as a, as a person um, is good. And if you have the enthusiasm and drive, uh, that's, that's enough, you know? Fantastic. Um, there's a line in your bio on ASOC's website that stood out to me, which says you have a special fondness for Antarctica's fascinating but little-known invertebrate species, and you aspire to make them as famous and beloved as penguins. Now, I am a huge invertebrate nerd, so I just wanted to give you the opportunity to introduce us to Antarctica's amazing miniature wildlife. Please tell us about a few of your favorites. All right. So most of the species in Antarctica are invertebrates. Um, You know, we see penguins, we see whales, we see seals because they're all on the surface. But we don't see a lot of the invertebrates that live on the seafloor or uh, just in the water column. Um, And they are incredible. Um, There is a a starfish called uh, Labidiaster annulatus that can have up to 50 arms. It's actually a predatory starfish. It can hold on to rocks with some of its many arms and then grab krill out of the water with others. Um, it's uh, they've, they've put it in labs and it's eaten like everything that they've put in front of it, uh, all kinds of random human food. Um, there's a, a kind of coral in Antarctica that walks itself along the seafloor. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, creatures living towards the bottom of the ocean, you know, they are, they don't always get the nutrients that might be circulating up ahead. So this coral can flop itself over, feed on everything that's around it, and then move on once it's, (laughs) once it's run out. Um, there's just all, there's a colossal squid that's, you know, these huge animals with eyes the size of dinner plates that we hardly know anything about because they live so far down and we very rarely see them. I mean, um, and not an invertebrate per se, but these nesting fish that I was talking about earlier, you know, there's millions, like literally millions of fish nesting, which is an unusual phenomenon among fish in, in part of the ocean. Um, and there's glass sponges that can live for 500 years um, and get, you know, big enough for a person to sit in. Um, if you ever if you ever just Google Antarctic seafloor images, I mean, you will be astonished. They're colorful, more colorful than you might expect. Um, there's, there's just all kinds of uh, amazing species down there. It's like a, a beautiful underwater garden. And, you know, hardly anyone will ever get to see it, um, except in pictures or in, in video footage. And... Um, 
you know, we, we know so little about some of these creatures, um, but they're, they're incredibly adapted to this extremely harsh and um, unforgiving environment. And I just think that, that that's amazing, you know, um, all the things that are, that are down there, um, you know, with their crazy adaptations and, and crazy abilities to, you know, walk across the seafloor. <laughs> so um, I love Antarctic invertebrates and I think, um, you know, people should learn about them too. I know they're not as cute, um, but they are pretty fascinating. That's certainly what I try to spend a lot of my time here in the Amazon doing is shining a light on our amazing invertebrates. It's interesting when you get to these really extreme environments, because obviously the Amazon and Antarctica are complete opposites in a lot of ways, but I guess they're both really intense, extreme environments to be living in. And yeah, as you said, the, the adaptations that evolution comes up with in order for these tiny little creatures to survive are just unbelievable. Yeah. And if I can just interject a like kind of personal um, opinion here, I think wonder at the natural world is really important. I think a lot of times when we're in policy discussions, people get into these debates about what the science says or what the science doesn't say. But I, I don't think people will ever really care enough to protect the natural world, regardless of, of how urgent the science is. I mean, we can see that the science on climate change is incredibly dire, but it's not forcing people to act. I think a lot of these, like the motivation to protect the protect things or to act on any political issue, a lot of times does come from emotion. And I don't think we should be afraid of that. Um, you know, they're all, they're, we're in a huge universe that's so vast, like our minds can barely comprehend it. And we're the only planet we know about where there's any, really any life at all, not to mention uh, the kinds of amazing life we have in the Amazon and the poles and all these different environments. We have so much diversity and so much um, amazing um, examples of evolution that have produced these animals with these crazy characteristics. Um, and I think um, inspiring people to to think about those things and appreciate them, not for what they can do for them economically, but just for the fact that we live on a planet with so much life when there's we, we don't know if there's any other life out there in the universe. I think that's really important um, because, again, I do think that, you know, without that emotion, without that inner kind of feeling like, hey, this world is amazing. Um, I, I don't see us making you know progress in the long term. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember it was after I graduated uni, I was working an office job for my university in Melbourne and had two weeks of leave and my boss told me I had to take it. And I spontaneously booked a booked a flight to Borneo. And I still remember my first night in the jungle, in a tropical jungle, and it was life-changing. Like, it, there was nothing like it. And I imagine Antarctica is the same. And, but you can, you can find those moments in your, in your backyard. It's, um, it's really important to encourage people to get out there and experience it. Um, I want to ask you about your toughest, most challenging day or experience working for ASOC. And I also want to ask you about your best, most rewarding day or experience. And I'll let you decide which one you'd like to talk about first. Uh, well, I think the, the most rewarding was uh, seeing the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area created um, because, you know, that was looking pretty bad <laughs> um, at one point. And so having that win was really important and having it, um, having a win without, um, you know, 
compromising um, the the environmental benefits of the MPA. I mean, you know, the, there were some concessions made to get all the countries to agree, but they weren't um, so huge that, that they made the MPA, you know, essentially a paper park or meaningless. Um, we are preserving, you know, a really important um, part of that ecosystem. Um, I think so. I think that was really meaningful, and just seeing um, seeing what you can do if you're creative and and try to get past uh, the opposition and and figure out a way forward. Um, so seeing that was really positive. Um, I think I'm trying to think the hardest day. Um, you know, I think uh, at some of the recent Camelar meetings, maybe not one specific day, but just seeing a really compelling case uh, laid out uh, for a marine protected area um, and seeing and, and knowing that globally um, more and more countries are signing on to 30 by 30. Um, but then when we have an opportunity to put that in place, like at the most recent Camelar meeting, there were three MPAs on the table and to have all of them blocked by one or two countries um, was, is, is a, it's really hard. Um, and even, even just um, something like uh, the nesting fish areas, there was a, a separate proposal to protect those under um, uh, another Camelar um under another Camelar regulation that allows you to protect uh, sensitive areas on the seafloor when they're discovered. Um, seeing that blocked, even though we have literal video footage of the whole area, um, I think that that's been, you know, that's kind of disheartening because I, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, we're interested in, in sort of preserving the overall values of the Antarctic Treaty System. And so feeling like, feeling like those are changing and not changing because, um, there's a tide, a tide against them or a, a big majority of countries against them, but, but because there are a couple of countries that are, um, not, um, supportive and not willing to engage in, in good faith dialogue about how to, if there's a, to, to get a compromise, I think that is, is a little, is very challenging for me. Um, but again, I, um, I remember that, you know, when I first started at ASAC, I organized a bunch of the old filing cabinets. And in them, I found things where people were saying, we'll never get a mining ban in Antarctica. We'll never do this. We'll never do that. And we did them. So um, even when it is hard, I try to remember, you know, it is worth it. Um, even when it feels, even when it feels really difficult. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world that I can't control that's affecting how these countries interact with each other. Obviously, you know, wars and you know, other kinds of things going on. And I can't, uh, from my seat at ASOC, my colleagues and I can't change those dynamics ourselves. Um, but we have seen that, that cooperation can be possible, uh, even when things are tense. So, um, I guess just trying to keep that in mind is what keeps me going when, when everything feels really, really tough. Like when you're in that meeting and everything that has been proposed has been rejected, except approving more fishing quotas, um, so <laughs> I think that's what you you just have to keep in mind that if you give up, you'll never see a, a, a win. Um, but if you keep going, you very well, very well might. That's yeah, really interesting. I mean, we often hear about uh, tipping points in terms of nature and ecosystems and science and often how hard they are to predict. But there are social and political tipping points as well, and they can often be quite difficult to see coming. So, absolutely, yeah, um, it's very interesting. Um, I've got a couple of 
quickfire questions that I like to ask everyone. You keen for that? Great. All right. You're allowed to pick one person, living or dead, and you get to live their entire life from start to finish. So you pick, you pause your life right now. You live their entire life, experiencing everything they've experienced, and then you come back to your life with all of their memories. Who do you choose? Ooh. Um. I think I'd have to say uh, Shirley Chisholm, uh, who I mentioned before, because I think. She has a, an approach um, that I really admire, and she, as far as I can tell, uh, never sold out, never compromised. Um, so <laughs> having that um, knowledge of how to do that, uh, I think would be very valuable to, to come back with. Fantastic. Um, question two, you wake up tomorrow and you find you've been elected president of the world. You've got full power and everyone's supportive of what you're doing. You don't need to compromise to win votes or anything like that. What's the first thing you do in regards to Antarctica and the Southern Ocean? Mm, first thing, um, declare marine protected areas, I think. <laughs> How many uh, where? Not even 30%, maybe 50%, you know, <laughs> or maybe even the whole ocean. Why not? Um, you know, you don't, yeah. none of the, none of the fisheries, um, in Antarctica are supporting food security. So maybe, yeah. maybe just do a little pause for a while. That's interesting. Can you break that down a little more? Um, none of the fisheries are supporting food security. Yeah. So Antarctic toothfish, while it's a very well regulated and well-managed fishery, you know, most of that fish, um, is sold for extremely high prices. You know, it's like over... 15 US dollars a pound, I think, typically, uh, somewhere in the 20s. Um, so, you know, it's, it's mostly consumed by fairly wealthy people or, or well-off middle-class folks. Um, krill, for the large part, is going to feed farm salmon, which, again, is, is not kind of, you know, a... Um, you know, not, not kind of like a staple food product, um, or uh, fish oil capsules, which tend to be pretty expensive. Um, you know, there is some a small amount for human consumption, but even that uh, is is pretty expensive from what I've seen. Um, and so it's not, um, you know, these fisheries aren't feeding the poor. Um, these aren't local fisheries um, from people from people in, in small communities. Um, these are large industrial operations. Um, so which doesn't necessarily mean that that we as ASOC oppose those fisheries uh, necessarily, but I do think it's important to keep in mind uh, when you're when you're regulating something, you have to be concerned about the impact on humans. Um, when you're regulating something like a fishery, you, you want to be sensitive to the impact on local communities. But within Antarctica, that's a little bit easier because, like I said, these are not um, these are not supporting um, people in a in a. Uh, developing country or people in an impoverished community. Um, these are fairly, um, these are, these are, these are fisheries of choice. Um, it's very difficult to get to Antarctica. It takes a lot of fuel. Um, so it's not something necessarily that you can just pop into. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's an important consideration, um, regardless of, of again, how it, whether, you know, some of the rules for the Antarctic toothfish fishery are extremely good. I mean, if they were operating in all fisheries, we'd be a lot better off. Um, 
But I do still think it's always, we should always be asking ourselves the question, you know, should we do this? I think a lot of times with the environmental movement, um, the question, when the, when the sustainability kind of ethos came up, people started focusing on how to do things better rather than thinking about whether they should do them in the first place. Um, and I think that still is, is kind of plaguing our discussions about environmental policy today. Uh, we don't often enough take a step back and think, you know, what is, what are we doing here? Like, what are we, you know, what is the benefit to this? Um, is, is this a short-term benefit for us or, you know, can we benefit the environment long-term? And I think if we shift our thinking to, Honestly, protecting the environment, there might be short-term pain in terms of, you know, some industries or, or economic activities having to slow down or cease. In the long term, we'll be better off because if, if the environment is healthy, we can be healthy, but we cannot be healthy without a healthy environment. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, two more questions for you. What are some other organizations who inspire you and whose work you admire? One organization I really admire is um, a group called Rise St. James, and they're working here domestically in the United States um, in a place uh, called Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And it's called Cancer Alley because it's such a huge uh, concentration of petrochemical plants. Um, and uh, their leader, uh, Sharon Levine, has been fighting against the opening of additional uh, plants, including uh, plastics uh, plant um, for years now. And I think um, I think they're very admirable um, because the communities there are very poor. And that's part of the reason that all of these plants are located there, because people kind of assume that it's OK um, to concentrate a lot of polluting industries in one place as long as the people there aren't going to fight back. Um, but she is fighting back and she's had some successes. Um, and she is, you know, promoting a vision of economic development for her region that isn't uh, dependent on destroying the environment. And I think that's really valuable because we often hear, even in the climate debate today, well, you know, people have to do this to... Um, develop their countries to improve their economies. And um, I think it's really important to have people saying, look, you know, that's just because other countries destroy the environment on their path to prosperity doesn't mean that we have to do the same. Um, and I also think she's drawing attention to an area of the country that's been neglected by policymakers. Um, and she's demanding um, environmental justice uh, for her community. And I think that's incredible. Um, and yeah, I just, I really admire the work that they're doing. And um, I'd love to see more of that kind of community activism everywhere in the world. Brilliant. That sounds like an incredible organization. I, uh, I think I remember watching an episode of, was it John Oliver or something like that, that was on, on that topic. And uh, yeah, it, it sounds like they're doing really amazing work. So we'll put a link to them in the show notes as well. Um, a final question for you. If people were to donate money to ASOC, what kinds of things would that money go towards? Uh, well, a lot of our work is... Um like I said, focused on marine protected areas right now, but we are also working on other things like uh, tourism and tourism regulation and, and climate change. Um, 
We do a lot of different activities. Obviously, a lot of our work is focused around the Antarctic governance system. And so what that means um, in practical terms is that we need a team of, of policy experts and other folks um, who are advocating uh, for environmental policies in different countries, because again, we need consensus. So we need a lot of countries to agree to things. Um, we need to come up with um, policy ideas um, that we can promote and that we can try to get countries to take up and 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 officially propose within the system. Because as as a non-country ourselves, we can we can sort of suggest things, but only you know, if in terms of an actual regulation on tourism, say a country has to propose it for it to be officially discussed and decided on. Um, so yeah, I mean, we um, are always working on that. We're always working on strategies to um, get the message out. Um, so that's a large part of what we do. We try to make sure the public is aware of what's going on. Um, we try to get media attention on important things. Um, you know, a lot of people write to me and, and ask, oh, can I have an internship because I want to work in Antarctica? We're at, we actually don't work in, in Antarctica most of the time directly. Um, we're often, um, you know, working right in our own countries, um, talking to governments, promoting these ideas, um, trying to find ways forward um, and getting get trying to get uh, officials together to to talk about these issues um, and to negotiate you know as mentioning that one of the problems we have is that there isn't a lot of negotiating in good faith um, so yeah so um, that's what your work would support is us um, trying to get past some of these consensus uh, barriers that we have um, and we use all the tools we have um, we use, media stories, we use social media, um, we use science, you know, sometimes we fund science projects that can help provide the information um, that can be used to convince people to make a decision. Um, we take every, every tactic we can uh, that we think might move the needle on some of these tough issues. Brilliant. Well, the idea with this podcast is that every month I want to feature a different not-for-profit organization. And then I also run a Patreon where people can support the project. Half the money helps me to keep sharing more stories, while the other half goes directly to those organizations. So I'll be sending that donation over to ASOC very shortly. Um, a very big thank you to all of the amazing people who support this project, and an even bigger thank you to you, Claire, for taking the time to chat with me today about all of the incredible work that you and your team are doing. I love I love the passion that you've got. That, that discussion about wonder and awe was really fantastic so yeah thank you so much for joining me well thank you for a wonderful conversation and thanks for um putting the word out there about antarctica my pleasure keep up the great work okay thank you that was claire christian executive director of the antarctic and southern ocean coalition as always, I'd like to highlight three key points that Claire made, and the first is this one. And so around uh, the late 80s, uh, the, the countries had finished their negotiations on the mining convention um, and that all that was left was for all of them to sign. And so it did kind of seem a little bit dire. You know, the NGOs were still pushing for no mining at all, mining ban, um, you know, in a world park. And uh, countries were still saying that's not going to happen. That's not realistic. All we can do is regulate it. Um, we can't stop it. 
Uh, but then kind of after all these negotiations had gone on for all these years, Australia and, and France uh, said, you know what, we're not going to sign this. And that was kind of a huge uh, moment, I think, um, after, you know, you typically if you negotiate something for or talk about something for a decade, you know, you want a result. Um, and then um, after that, uh, other countries joined them. It, it became clear that this was not going to succeed. And within a very short period of time, within about two years, the countries had instead negotiated something called the Environment Protocol, which includes um, a ban on mining. As an Australian, this story really stood out to me, and I ended up doing a bit more of a deep dive into it. There's a great paper which was published shortly afterwards titled Death of a Treaty, The Decline and Fall of the Antarctic Minerals Convention, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, and it basically outlines the entire story. It's a fascinating history, but the thing that jumped out to me most was just how much the political left in Australia has become encapsulated by the mining sector in the decades since. At the time of the Minerals Convention, Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke said that his government is firmly opposed to mining in Antarctica and encouraged other nations to join Australia in banning mining on the Antarctic continent altogether, a push that was ultimately successful. He even called for Antarctica to be turned into a world park, language that was initially popularised by Greenpeace. Yet today, our current Prime Minister, who's from the same political party as Bob Hawke, is giving press conferences in Rio Tinto shirts, and has backed Woodside's Burrup Hub projects off the coast of Western Australia, which are currently being actively campaigned against by Greenpeace. But hey, let's not forget that our right-wing government was taken to The Hague for spying on the small nation of East Timor on behalf of Woodside, so I guess it could be worse. The second point I'd like to emphasise is this one. Unfortunately, now though, we're seeing most of the, mostly downsides from consensus, which is that um, there's broad agreement uh, among many Antarctic Treaty parties and the countries that participate in this governance system about what needs to be done. Um, there's a lot of scientific evidence backing up uh, what they would like to do. And then there's just a couple of holdouts holding other folks back. Um, and there isn't always a good faith effort to try to find uh, a way forward. This was a really interesting discussion and one that's relevant far beyond Antarctica. Too often, consensus is just another method by which already powerful nations maintain their hegemony. Monga Bay had an interesting podcast recently looking at the negotiations behind the establishment of a loss and damage fund prior to the recent COP28 conference. And it was striking to listen to how an agreement that had full consensus from all other nations involved was consistently vetoed and watered down by the United States. And we saw an almost identical dynamic playing out during the recent UN Security Council negotiations of a resolution in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza again with the US as the lone holdout. But obviously it's not just the US. When it comes to the Antarctic, it's China and Russia that are using identical tactics to block the establishment of new marine protected areas. The key point, however, is that when the interests of the global community clash with the interests of powerful nation states, it's typically the latter that win out. As Claire emphasised, there are benefits to a consensus model as well. And I don't know exactly what an ideal system would look like. But 
The answer surely lies in a shift towards a more democratic global system, regardless of which aspect of international politics is being addressed. The last point I'd like to highlight is this. So most of the species in Antarctica are invertebrates. Um, you know, we see penguins, we see whales, we see seals because they're all on the surface, but we don't see a lot of the invertebrates that live on the seafloor or uh, just in the water column. Um, and they are incredible. Um, there is a, a starfish called uh, Labidiaster annulatus that can have up to 50 arms. It's actually a predatory starfish. It can hold on to rocks with some of its many arms and then grab krill out of the water with others. There's a, a kind of coral in Antarctica that walks itself along the seafloor. There's a colossal squid that's, you know, these huge animals with eyes the size of dinner plates that we hardly know anything about because they live so far down and we very rarely see them. Um, and there's glass sponges that can live for 500 years um, and get, you know, big enough for a person to sit in. Um, if you ever if you ever just Google Antarctic seafloor images, I mean, you'll be astonished. They're colorful, more colorful than you might expect. There's, there's just all kinds of uh, amazing species down there. It's like a, a beautiful underwater garden and, you know, hardly anyone will ever get to see it um, except in pictures or in, in video footage. And... Um, you know, we, we know so little about some of these creatures, um, but they're, they're incredibly adapted to this extremely harsh and um, unforgiving environment. Don't worry, I don't have any deep reflections on politics or economics related to this quote. I just included it so that I could encourage everyone to go and learn more about invertebrates. Despite not having one, they are the backbone of our global ecosystems, and they deserve far more love and attention than they currently receive. This ties back to Claire's quote which I opened the episode with, relating to the importance of wonder and not being afraid to be motivated by emotion. So for anyone who's looking for a little bit of invertebrate inspiration, I've included a link to a five-minute YouTube documentary at the end of the show notes which contains some incredible footage of life on the Antarctic sea floor, including a sequence on that predatory starfish that Claire mentions. I also just want to encourage people to take a look at ASOC's website as well. It's an incredible learning resource for people of all ages and a great place to start if you're looking for more information about anything related to Antarctica. On that website, you'll also find a little button in the top corner which will allow you to donate money to ASOC, and I'd highly encourage everyone to do that as well. On behalf of all the amazing people who support this project, I was able to make a donation of a little over 100 US dollars to the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition. If you'd like to help me give more money to more amazing NGOs in the future, please consider signing up to the Patreon via the link in the show notes for as little as $5 a month. In the show notes, you'll also find further information about a range of topics that Claire and I discussed during this conversation. Another big thank you to everyone who supports this podcast and to Claire Christian for being keen to chat with me about the incredible work of her and her team. I hope you found the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition as inspiring as I did. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Protect the World.